Howdy. Howdy to you. Beautiful evening. Yeah. She want to thank you for coming all the way up here to see me from that nice hotel downtown. No problem. It's on your mind. Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. A man's attitude. A man's attitude goes some ways the way his life will be. Is that something you might agree with? Sure. Now, did you answer because that's what you thought I wanted to hear? Or did you think about what I said and answer because you truly believe that to be right? I agree with what you said. True. What'd I say? That a man's attitude determines to a large extent how his life will be. So since you agree, you must be a person who does not care about the good life. How's that? We'll stop for a little second. Think about it. Can you do that for me? Okay. I'm thinking. No, you're not thinking. You're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking. Now I want you to think and stop being a smart alley. The Mona Lisa, the Pietà, the girl with a pearl earring. For a score of centuries, artists enriched Western society with their works of astonishing beauty. The Night Watch, The Thinker, Rocky Mountains. Master after master, from Leonardo to Rembrandt to Bierstadt, produced works that inspired, uplifted, and deepened us. And they did this by demanding of themselves the highest standards of excellence, improving upon the work of each previous generation of masters, and continuing to aspire to the highest quality attainment. But something happened on the way to the 20th century. The profound, the inspiring, and the beautiful were replaced by the new, the different, and the ugly. Today, the silly, the pointless, and the purely offensive are held up as the best of modern art. Michelangelo carved his David out of a rock. The Los Angeles County Museum of Art just offers us a rock. A rock. All 340 tons of it. That's how far standards have fallen. How did this happen? How did the thousand-year ascent towards artistic perfection and excellence die out? It didn't. It was pushed out. Oh, you haven't tried the KFC Dunkin' Wings? So you must be Sarah. Sarah has no short-term memory. She was gonna get some wings when she forgot her wallet at home. But then she forgot why she went home. Also, she didn't know where home was. Sex, I think it's gonna stick around. That was an innovation that actually came along with death. Before sexual reproduction, cells were immortal. They never died, they would reproduce asexually. I think we'll keep the sex and get rid of the death. Sexuality has become a form of communication. It's obviously a rich area of human activity and communication. We have already separated 
sexuality from largely from its biological reproduction. We can have reproduction without sex. We can certainly have sex without reproduction. So we've already kind of isolated it as a communication medium. And in that regard, it's, it's important. I think all these technologies enhance our ability to communicate. Sexuality has always been an important part of new media technologies. Virtual reality will be an opportunity to expand all kinds of human relationships. We want to sing the love of danger, the habit of energy and rashness. The essential elements of our poetry will be courage, audacity and revolt. Literature has up to now magnified pensive immobility, ecstasy and slumber. We want to exalt movements of aggression, feverish, sleeplessness, the double march, the perilous leap, the slap and the blow. With the fist, we declare that the splendor of the world has been enriched by a new beauty. The beauty of speed. A racing automobile with its bonnet adorned. With great tubes like serpents with explosive breath. A roaring motor car which seems to run on machine gun fire, is more beautiful than the victory of Samad race. We want to sing the man at the wheel, the ideal axis of which crosses the earth, itself hurled along its orbit. The poet must spend himself with warmth, glamour and prodigality to increase the enthusiastic fervor of the primordial elements. Beauty exists only in struggle. There is no masterpiece that has not an aggressive character. Poetry must be a violent assault on the forces of the unknown, to force them to bow before man. We are on the extreme promontory of the centuries. What is the use of looking behind at the moment when we must open the mysterious shutters of the impossible? Time and space died yesterday. We are already living in the absolute. Since we have already created eternal, omnipresent speed, we want to glorify war, the only cure for the world. Militarism, patriotism, the destructive gesture of the anarchists, the beautiful ideas, which kill, and contempt for women. We want to demolish museums and libraries, fight morality, feminism, and all opportunist and utilitarian cowardice. We will sing of the great crowds agitated by work, pleasure and revolt. The multicolored and polyphonic surf of revolutions in modern capitals, the nocturnal vibration of the arsenals and the workshops beneath their violent electric moons, the gluttonous railway stations devouring smoking serpents, factories suspended from the clouds by the threat of air, smoke, Bridges with the leap of gymnasts flung across the diabolic cutlery of sunny rivers. Adventurous steamers sniffing the horizon. Great-breasted locomotives, puffing on the rails like enormous steel horses with long tubes. For bridle, and the gliding flight of aeroplanes whose propeller sounds like the flapping of a flag and the applause of enthusiastic crowds. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you singularity-sucking screedlers. This is Staff Only, the podcast studio manager. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney.
I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 45 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. It's been a busy couple of weeks, Screedlers, with no signs of slowing down anytime soon. I hope you've enjoyed my recent episodes with Andrew Quo, Thomas J. Gamble, and, of course, the painful and tense conversation that I had with my podcast studio manager here, Staffenly, about her uh, trials and tribulations in a parallel uh, Sonoran desert reality. Now, over the next couple of weeks, I've got some great episodes lined up, and I can't wait to share them with you. We are doing another DSA podcast, that's Darcy, Sean, and Ezekway, that'll be out exclusively to our subscribers on Drip. The DSA podcast is sort of a podcast within the podcast. Now, to catch that and previous and future DSA episodes, head on over to d.rip slash humor in the abject to sign up. On Sunday... Everyone, not just Drip subscribers, will be getting a new episode with my wonderful pal, the artist Andrew McGinty. And also this weekend, I'm going to be braving the Long Island Railroad and heading out for a site visit with artist David Kennedy Cutler as he, quote, survives the winter in East Hampton at Halsey McKay Gallery. We're going to be recording an on-site podcast episode within his installation he's been building out there, and then I'm going to stay the night inside of his weird-ass show, uh, inside of one of the sort of like shelter things that he builds. Now, there are a couple more episodes coming very soon with one of my favorite comedian cabaret stars and one with a curator and gallerist whose research is very, very now. So yeah, are you planning on visiting Nada New York this year, the art fair? If so, please consider scheduling your visit for Saturday during the fair. That's Saturday, March 10th, because at 3 p.m. that day, I'm going to be doing a live Humor and the Abject podcast episode as part of the Nada Presents series with one of my absolute favorite people. A formal announcement is coming soon, but let's just say that you might know him from the art world or from HBO and Netflix. He's a real gem. Let's stop talking about the literal future for a second, though, and think more abstractly about the concept of futurism. What's the deal with futurism? Uh, I'm really excited this week to have been able to schedule a conversation with my dear pal from Miami, filmmaker and visual artist Jillian Mayer. You know Jillian from her work with the Borscht Corp Film Collective, her music video work for the Arcade Fire, or maybe the outrageous YouTube viral hit I Am Your Grandma. I was trying to remember how I first met Jillian earlier today, and like any good recovering arts administrator, I did a deep Gmail search for our first correspondence, and apparently in 2013, that's five years ago, I sent Jillian an email with the subject line... OMFG, after my pal, performance artist and filmmaker Jordan Wayne Long told me to check out her work. The message that I sent her was total fanboy stuff, just gushing about how much I loved her work. We ended up corresponding back and forth and realized that we had a ton of mutual friends and that a lot of our interests overlapped. And since then, I've had her as a guest artist in classes that I've taught. I've hung out with her whenever I go to Miami. And I got to do a South by Southwest event a few years back with her, young Jake, friend of the pod Molly Soda, and writer and photographer Whitney Mallet. Uh, I also interviewed Jillian for The Practical Precariat, my piece that's out in Art in America this month. Um, now, in the time that I've known her, she's had solo exhibitions at uh, Utah Museum of Fine Art, Perez Art Museum in Miami, 
Uh, she was in that group exhibition Past Skin at MoMA super recently, and right now she's part of Prospect 4 in New Orleans. She's also been in like every film festival imaginable. Uh, her work ethic leaves me completely dumbfounded. Jillian is in town right now because she just had her first New York solo exhibition, which is called Post Posture. It is at Post Masters Gallery. Post Posture at Post Masters. Post Posture at Post Masters. Post Posture at Post Masters Gallery. I went to the opening on Saturday uh, with Mike Pepe and the aforementioned Andrew McGinty, and it was such a blast. There were so many people at it. It was packed. Such a good vibe. What a great opening. Uh, lots of love to Postmasters Gallery, uh, especially for giving uh, that show to Jillian, who I think should have a show everywhere. I love, love, love her work. If you are in New York City, you should swing by Postmasters to see the show. It's going to be up through March 31st, and as you'll hear me say later on today's episode, <clears throat> Jesus, as you'll hear me say later on today's episode, uh, Postmasters is like a, a, a normal gallery. They're open uh, during the week, uh, during the times that they say that they're open. Uh, so go see that up through March 31st. Uh, thanks again to all of you for listening to Human the Abject. It's always a pleasure to know that you tune in and catch conversations with basically what are people that I just idolize. Uh, all right, that's enough from me, obviously. Here is my conversation with Jillian May. Are you ready? Do I look ready? Yeah, you look very ready. Uh, Jillian Mayer, welcome to Humor in the Abject. How's your week going? Oh, so good, Sean. So good. Yeah. What has been happening? You're visiting New York right yes. now. And you're heading out when? I am heading out um, Friday morning. Uh, I was supposed to leave earlier, but a friend told me I could have tickets to The Daily Show and Ludacris is on it. Ooh. And I got so excited that I booked my ticket for that. And then I realized I booked it for the wrong day. So oh, I'm no. here an extra day. You're here an extra day. And where are you headed to after this? I am going to New Orleans uh, to go to the end of Prospect a show that is occurring there right now. Is Prospect the like citywide art thing that happens in New Orleans? Yeah, I suppose it's like a triennial, a biennial. Trienial. Ooh, there's a triennial right now that's going on. Right now. At a little museum that some people might say is new. <laughs> never been. <laughs> You've never been to the new museum? No, I've been. I just haven't <laughs> gone to this show yet. <laughs> Are you in the Prospect? You've been in the Prospect. Are you in it now? I currently am in it, and it concludes this February. Uh, there's a Kara Walker performance, and a, basically, I love gumbo. Okay. <laughs> so. A double excuse. When I, what are you showing in Prospect? I am showing a video that I made in 2014 that is um, can be played uh, regular, facing the audience, and backwards. Not backwards in reverse, but mirrored mirrored like you can stand in the reverse projection like you could stand behind the screen and see it so what i mean by saying that the file can be played mirrored is that i have um essentially a mirror copy of it that i did in post and it is the text backwards so um 
So what the video is, is it says you'll be okay in fading cloud, fading clouds, basically a sky plane uh, has written you'll be okay. But then I've taken the video and mirrored it in post-production so that the message implies that it could be also coming from maybe outer space yeah. and we're just seeing the back end of it. Or perhaps it's from another realm and we're seeing what they thought we would be able to see in a sensical way. Uh, if you show it normally, which is as it is presented in uh, New Orleans and a couple of other places so far, people like to see things legibly, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of weird. But um, then it just reads, you'll be okay, but it fades. So it's kind of this fleeting this fleeting message of, uh, of uh, assurance. Assurance. Now... Fix it in post. Is that a... Do you get to say that a lot? Because you make film stuff? You know, I'll be fixing things in post sometimes. Do you say that on the set when something goes wrong, when you're making films? Well, it's kind of a joke because I don't actually know how to film make pretty well. So everything (laughs) I assume someone will be able to to fix this in post. Uh, Anytime I screw something up, we reference other terms like, oh yeah, fix that in CG. Mm. computer generated computer generated nice god bless those generations (laughs) so you drove over here this morning how was uh you were texting me yesterday and you're saying that you were a little nervous about driving in new york well how was the experience did you do okay um yes i only hit i hit one guy's mirror what and, (laughs) and he then pulled up to me and I was like, you hit my car. And I was just, I just lipped sorry through the window. I didn't even put my window down. I didn't even say sorry. I just mouthed sorry. And then I did it twice. And then he seemed satisfied and drove off. Oh, did you act, I mean, you just like clipped the mirror and it bent forward and it can pop back probably. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, a lot of cards, you can kind of flip it forward and then it comes back. So it might not even be that big of a deal. It's yeah. probably more the the... He's just upset because his property has been infringed upon, you know? Yeah. I mean, oh, oh, I'm sure he got to work. Yeah. Where, where you were you driving from New Jersey? Yeah, I visited my grandma last night. I slept in bed with her. Cool. Um, Where's grandma live? Livingston. Livingston. I don't know that. Uh, it's really, she's so cute. She's so cute. She has funny things to say. Um, yeah. She's, I went to New Jersey this weekend. For what? I went to Jersey City. Went to the Liberty Science Center. I took Claire to the Star Trek Starfleet Academy Training <laughs> Center exhibit. She really likes Star Trek. You're a good man. <laughs> I've never seen it. Well, I watched one episode. She made me watch, uh, I think, the first episode of Star Trek The New Generation, and it had some guy named Q, and he's very mean, and he's like an all, all knowledgeable being. And I think maybe it has something to do with Borgs, but I could be wrong. But I took the Starfleet Academy test, too. <laughs> and I found out that I would be good for command. Obviously. That would be my role. There were like nine different jobs that you could get. And that's one that I got. Um, my other friends that are in love took each other to the Lego <laughs> show or something. <laughs> I just can't wait to be in love so I can go to all these so cool exhibits. exhibits. Yeah, I, went, I thought I was going to get in for free because I'm like an educator at MoMA. But the lady at the front, I was like, you know, sometimes you run a little distraction game and it's like confusing and you're like, hey, 
uh, I'm an educator. I get like a, I get in for free and I get like a plus one or something. And I mean, she knew the drill exactly. She was like, uh, you can have a regular ticket, but you need to pay the difference to go to the Star Trek exhibit and you do not get a plus one. And I have I was a like, feeling. Oh, okay. yeah. It was like $70 to go to the Oh my God. Thing. I'm from Florida. You could have gone to a real theme park. Well, okay. We don't have those here. <laughs> They're the best. They're the safest place in the world and all the fun is constructed and totally great. Do you go to, wait, Disney World is in Florida. Disneyland is in California. You know, I don't really know, um, but I go to them. <laughs> I just get in the car and it's like three hours away. There is Islands of Adventure. Yeah. I mean, I've never even seen Harry Potter, but I've been on the ride. I've gone to the world. And that's how it is for a lot of my experiences. What is I'm not the, sure what the what original is. What is the ride? Is. So good. Is it Quidditch? What? Is it that game on the broom? Dude, I don't know. <laughs> Were you riding a broom? No, you're like in this, this, um, like imagine a van with no top. Not the Scooby-Doo, but like, you know, these like, Virtual reality. Okay. No, no, that's not the right word anymore because now that means other things. Just this little compartment, you know, you strap in, wiggle around. Uh, sometimes you shoot people and some people... Oh, the Men in Black game is horrible. The Men in Black ride, that one you shoot. But I don't even think the like beams are connected to the aliens. You have Simpsons World. I think this is Islands of Adventure. I can't remember. Whoa. I've never even heard of this park. It sounds amazing. It's the best. It's the go. best one. Yeah, like some... Oh my gosh, once I teased all my friends... They wouldn't go on the roller coaster, and I bullied everyone into going with me. <clears throat> Damn it. Now I have to tell it like that I was also on acid. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. Okay, I was on a tiny bit of acid. <laughs> I, was, I was at, uh, I think I was at Disneyland. I think Disneyland. I don't know. One of them, I can't remember if it was California or Florida. This is a long time ago, but they had like a the towers of terror or something it oh, was yeah. like a, like a halloween exhibit right yeah type of thing and i guess it was in construction because they were going to change it to a tim burton kind of nightmare before christmas theme but they were still letting people go through it but they'd clearly removed most of the exhibit so it was kind of like it wasn't like the most impressive thing but you walked into this room and i don't remember the exact effect but essentially either the ceiling came down at you really quickly or like the floor dropped. Mm -hmm. I can't remember, but everybody's corralled in like this uh, octagonal shaped room as like a foyer before you go into the ride or something. And this thing happens and it's kind of like, whoa, you know, for a second, but not that disturbing. Then they open a door and everybody goes through. But as we were going through, I looked over and there was this guy in the corner and he was just like curled in a ball and he was like twitching. It had like totally wrecked his world. And I was like, I wonder what cocktail he's on right now. Like he's definitely got, and I think he stayed in there. So that means that a whole new group of people came into the room and then he had to go through it again. Sean, he's been in there for three years. <laughs> someone call someone. But that was, yeah, theme parks are, theme parks are wild. I feel like I haven't gotten to go to a lot because I didn't grow up in like Florida or California where I feel like a ton of them are, but I would watch tv commercials for like cedar point in ohio when i was a kid which is like all roller coasters and stuff and i never really built up the tolerance to be able to go on them i think i've been on one oh. and it was in san diego and it was made of wood and i was <laughs> fucking terrified the entire time yeah it's weirder when you're terrified not of the thrill but of the like of the literal logistics yeah it was, the, it was the architecture of the thing it was in like <laughs> the craftsmanship yeah well, there's like <laughs> in san diego there's like all these beaches that like town little beach towns that go up and one of them i think it's i'm somebody's gonna kill me for this but i think it's called like ocean beach and it's very hippie 
Mm, and don't trust them and so they kind of pride themselves on we have like the, the world's oldest wooden roller coaster or something and i was like most there's organic a, there's a reason coaster. why they don't make them out of wood anymore <laughs> maybe you all should try to catch up vegan basically <laughs> um but so i went i bullied everyone into going on this roller coaster oh with my god me. i'm sorry I interrupted you and i took us on a tangent no it's fine because this is all about this <laughs> it's in the world and um then everyone went on the roller coaster with me, and apparently my group's biggest regret is not buying the photo. Oh, that shows that me crying. <laughs> you got upset. <laughs> I got, I guess, motion sickness, <laughs> and I was just started hysterically crying on the ride because you know, like SMSs with your perception. Oh a yeah, bit. a little and, bit, <laughs> <laughs> mildly, I guess. So I hysterically was crying, just praying the ride would end, not because I was scared, just because oh. I felt so disoriented. Yeah. And then when the ride got off, they looked at me and I was sobbing. <laughs> and I undid the buckles, got off, started walking, and I couldn't stand up straight. I just darted over to the left. Like, I was totally seasick. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. And everyone took such joy in laughing at me because I was the, the tyrant that yeah. forced everyone to do something they didn't want to. And they had all had coming. fun. Well, yeah. Oh, my God. That, well, that and then thinking about going, when I went to uh, the Liberty Science Center, I went to a planetarium which like this giant planetarium and I saw this show about outer space and I remembered that I haven't, I've been to maybe a handful of planetariums in my life, but the first time I ever went to one was in the Van Andel Arena in a, or Van Andel Museum in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I was on acid and we went to see, <laughs> we went to see like a Pink Floyd laser tribute oh, yeah. show, you know, um, on the night that it happened, the museum was having some kind of benefit event for donors and they all got, you know, free tickets to go see this Pink Floyd laser show. So it was a mixture of people clearly on drugs and then a bunch of people in tuxedos. And we went into the planetarium and I was just kind of like, wow, I'm really starting. Like, I feel very weird being stuck in this room. I've just committed to being in here for like 45 minutes or an hour or something. And um, <clears throat> I think it was to Dark Side of the Moon. And that record <laughs> starts That record starts with like a, like a buildup of drums. And then it goes like... <laughs> Boom or something and like right when that bass hit all of these like little laser raindrops like effects come down or something like that and i was like oh my god and then i was like getting rained on and i was like whoa this is good acid you know i was like i'm all wet <laughs> like why am i all wet i was like looking around everybody next to me and all my friends were just kind of like why are we all wet and i was like oh wow we're all having we're like uh synchronized in our hallucinations this is amazing and then i realized that it was an old lady behind us who the base had scared and she had a martini and she'd thrown it she jerked and thrown the martini and it just rained down because i then i realized that the rain kind of smelled like gin and that was a little strange for me and just happy that the story didn't end it and you covered in piss no not pee just, <laughs> you're like why am i so wet gin is sort of like the pee of the bourgeoisie though they sort of just it's piss floral. they just piss gin <laughs> Um, I want to talk a little bit about your slumpies and your show that you have right now at Postmasters. Um, the slumpies are, they're not brand new. They've been shown before, but they're from the last couple of years. And the idea of them is that they're these sort of awkwardly functional sculptures that are also furniture that you can lounge in and become more easily fused with scrolling your phone. Is that correct? Yes. You can also uh, read email from them. What do you mean? You can scroll on your phone 
You can read headlines of articles. You can read your email. You can oh, even... you mean you can just use your phone? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not limiting anyone here. What are they made out of? They are made out of fiberglass, epoxy resin, uh, Amazon Prime cardboard boxes, wood, nails, screws, foam, enamel, um, like poly pigments, um, thing, uh, things. <laughs> Uh, some dirt from my backyard. <laughs> do they do they get dinged up? People are allowed to climb on them, right? Yeah, you can climb all over them. They're tough. They float. They're Ooh. since they're made of fiberglass, which is the same material as like um surfboards or boats. Um, they're really durable, and I'm I'm uh, attracted to those materials and kind of like those industrial hardcore materials they're pretty gnarly to make resin's kind of gross i can imagine yeah is it uh you got to do good ventilation i use them i mean i make them outside but we do wear masks gloves really cool outfits um i used bondo one time bondo's stinky bondo's heavy right bondo's stinky physically light but i mean it's a heavy duty material bondo makes you dumb (laughs) yeah oh i had to make a I was teaching high school and the students were doing uh, maybe Macbeth. Uh, one of the Shakespeare plays, wherever somebody's head gets ripped off and the head's at the end of it. I think it's Macbeth. Is that the one you can't say the name of in the theater? I get it mixed up. I don't know, but I was in a Shakes. I was watching uh, Terrell McCraney's uh, Shakespeare, one of his, uh, what is it, Cleopatra? And... No, I don't know. I'm no bard. <laughs> I'm basically uneducated um, <laughs> but i went to the trauma craney is one of his um one of his plays and s- right in the dying scene between the lovers on stage the female actress had her arm raised to the audience was doing her monologue or soliloquy or whatever and she just her face started dropping and i thought she was just such an incredible actress which she also was <laughs> but I realized she, I turned behind myself and realized that someone in the audience had just collapsed. (laughs) It was epic. And that's like 4D theater. 70. (laughs) (laughs) The person was probably 70. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I had to make a fake head of a student out of Bondo, like a severed head of the student. Mm. And I I used it outside, but I didn't wear a mask and I didn't know anything about the material. A friend just said, oh, you can really sculpt this stuff. It's really easy. You just use it and then you can shave it and sand it and all this stuff. But yeah, I think I was pretty dumb when I was done with it. I didn't feel good. Yeah. Nobody ever gets uh, smarter from fumes. I'm just going to say that on the record right now. (laughs) But um, so the opening, uh, opening was Saturday. Yeah. The opening was Saturday. Uh, That was quite a turnout. Was that your first solo show in new york yes it was it was how did you feel about the reception was that overwhelming there's a shitload of people at it there were so many nice people yeah uh it was really name names um sean patrick carney <laughs> jason musson how do you say his last name musson musson yeah <laughs> um i saw mike peppy there peppy. saw andrew mcginty there well i came with him um yeah a lot of my friends from film film and stuff and different creative projects uh a lot of people from different um writing outlets but not like art ones just cool ones savage what no art (laughs) ones are also cool but it's i think it's nice that it's not just yes 
I think I like. But will you make crosses a lot of boundaries? I feel like so that makes sense that it wouldn't just be a bunch of art nerds. But the thing that was kind of cool about it was there were so many people and it was so packed. But people were really getting a kick out of the fact that they could get on them, that they could climb on them and kind of interact. It's such a such a damn treat when you get to touch the art, you know? Yeah, I'm a I'm a sloucher. I pretty much hate being upright. Um, so it's really important for me to have something I can recline on or just get comfortable. I think, um, people, it's like, um, it's like when someone comes to your house and you offer them tea, you're in, it's like a welcoming way. And also there's all these social rules inside galleries and museums and institutions that we're all aware of. And when someone invites you to break those, it feels like you're in the know. And, um, you know, some, some institutions, when they show those works, they do put up photos that kind of explain in which I assumed one would interact with the piece. And there always is a general implied design. But for me, some of the the joy is watching people interact and try and navigate around them in this like type of chorea- choreography yeah. where they're maneuvering around. And they often create ways in which I never even assumed. And it's nice to be surprised. You know, you have a sculpture that you made two years ago and to see someone approach it in a totally different way uh, it also lets you know how how bad of an engineer one can be, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? But also how open a format can be as well. Do you feel like kids get on them a lot? Oh, kids love them. And I <laughs> sometimes wonder if that's because the color scheme. They're really colorful. They're yeah. also, though, they're shaped really uh, pleasantly wonky. Kind of, I think yeah. they have the visual vocabulary of... Visual vocabulary of Things like the drawings in Dr. Seuss, other things like that. There's this kind of whimsical thing to them. And even though they're made of this really tough material like fiberglass, they feel uh, kind of otherworldly and airy. So it feels like maybe it's, I I think if you're a kid, that would be a very attractive thing to jump on. You know, it's funny, like why is Streamline, Streamline like in design kind of has this like adult or mature or perfected Uh ideals. And it's, it's really funny because I always think about how I love like just retro futurism and kind of how people expect the future to have been and how clunky we look back and see it's so steel and bulky and just curved fluting columns. And um, I I like this really organic and kind of melting these kind of abstract shapes and these gooey, goopy kind of looks. Yeah, they're really goopy. They're goopy and I wanted them to look very much as if they were made by a human, the human being me. But um, because... Yes, we have this such this perfected sleek idea of the future, but right now we're in this really clumsy time where there's still like rendering time and things crashing and and we're not quite there yet. Things yeah. still kind of suck, but we're <laughs> on our way. So they I do want, suck. You know, I feel like things <laughs> suck. Uh, I feel like things suck more now that things are able to do more. In that, like, I don't know anyone who thinks their internet is good. Yeah. No one thinks their internet is good. No one thinks their streaming capabilities are good. Nobody's phone isn't fucking up constantly. My phone, I got, I spent money and got a new phone. First new phone in like <clears throat> four years. I know this is like a known, known problem, but now my phone arbitrarily capitalizes fucking words in the middle of text messages that have no reason to be capitalized. Like the word stuff, the mm-hmm. word little. And people are like, well, it's probably because you have something saved in your contacts that has that as a capital word. And I'm like, well, fuck you. That's not my problem. You know That's what? like very bad. This technology is not good. And the other thing, the streamline thing, uh, I'm really bothered that like a Mac computer doesn't have, like never had a USB port on the front of it. And that I had to climb over a desk 
behind this giant Mac display to kind of plug something in in the back. It seems outrageous to me. To plug your flashlight in. <laughs> yeah, I can get my flashlight all juiced up so that I can use it with that giant 42-inch fucking screen, man. Um, I'm trying to get lost in the moment. Two things. <laughs> two things I think of when you say what you've just said. Is one I don't of all... have a flashlight for the record. What's that over there? <laughs> just kidding. It's your fucking pet snails. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, which is, should never be mistaken for a flashlight, oh, okay. for the record. Uh, secondly, uh, of all words to capitalize, the word little is a really strange oh, word to capitalize. Yeah. It's like someone's just like, like an eighth grader is just messing with you. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like when you're like, when I was like eight, I was like, jumbo shrimp, so ridiculous. God, you guys are stupid. But also, um, something that we were just talking about. Oh, so. Goopy? No. Um, was about the like clumpiness of design. Yeah. Is that I'm really bummed because I keep going to places that are newly built and they look exactly like CGI render models. Uh-huh. And I can picture them down to me being one of those people yeah, that's yeah. frozen in time, yeah. walking still, like walking for their photo to show some investor. And it really bums me out. And it makes me want to go to some type of, like I just need to go back to like an older city, like I don't know, like Jerusalem or something, but like an older city where things look like they were made out of bread. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm missing rounded corners. I think I want to create like a SketchUp plan for a city that's just everything looks like it's soggy bread design i like that yeah like clay and then i think the slumps the slumpies will fit in right there they do whoa yeah they do have and i guess this maybe i subconsciously thought this before looking at them but the thing that clicks now that you say that is that they really have a relationship to i guess contemporary ceramics in the way that people are kind of having a lot of fun with clay and doing things that are um not following the sort of maker rules and things like that. And that's that's very hot right now. But you found a way to kind of use that, but not follow the trend of just using ceramics. No shade at ceramicists. Um, yeah, I like how c- ceramics has gotten really weird in the mainstream in the last 10 years. But I also hate standing up. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I found something I could sit on. Okay, so I know that... Um, so one film that you made, uh, Postmodem in particular, is kind of like a satirical take on concepts of the singularity. And is that a, that's Ray Kurzweil? Is that how you say his name? Is that the person yes. who wrote that stuff? Okay, I've never well, said it Well, he's one of the leading... One of the futurist theorist, folks, futurist, right? Yeah. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about Postmodem and where that project came from? And I guess it, it was both a film but also an installation. And this is a few years back, but... What what drew you to wanting to play with those concepts? Like, it seems like you're very interested in the concept of the singularity, but also a little bit, like, distrustful of it being a good thing at all. Yeah, so something that Kurzweil says, which I believe... Kurzweil? Kurzweil? Weil? Weil? I don't we- know. Kurzweil. Weil. Weil. Kurzweil. Something that Kurzweil... Kirky Wheel says that... Um, Let's just call him Ray K. Ray K. <laughs> Ray K says... <laughs> I like that. See, that's good. But it's hard to have an actual thought after that because I just get distracted by happiness. <laughs> okay, so something that Ray K says that I think is really, really... Uh, that affects me is that death is this kind of wasted, uh, wasted knowledge. 
And uh, that's part of why he's trying to, you know, live forever. And he takes many, many, many multivitamins every day. Um, and there is something really beautiful about this idea of being able to translate knowledge to generations that are to come and uh, what is lost. And um, I've done some research on like lost languages and, and um, it's, it is quite sad. There's actually, I'll segue for a second. There's this, um, this Herzog book that uh, kind of is like interviews that he's done. I forgot the name of it, but um, he was speaking about this guy that he came across and granted he makes up stories a lot. So it might not be true. <laughs> I'm also very gullible, <laughs> but um, so Herzog was speaking about this man that uh, is regarded as the mute and he lives in this old folks home and the nurses that care after him, he doesn't talk. So they just call him the mute but every day they gave him change, um, like coins, and he'd walk over to the payphone and put the coins in the slot and just hear them going through the the machine, the clink, clink, clink. And apparently, it's not that he's mute, but he's the last person from his tribe that speaks the language, and that noise sounds Whoa. like his language. So, I mean, what what does it mean to be the last person? I guess I'm segueing from like technological singularity thoughts, but I'm just thinking about the a base of knowledge and information and what happens when that becomes outdated and what happens when not even it's outdated, but literally you're the last person with this knowledge. Mm -hmm. And actually not to segue or like jump your questions, but my new body of work that I'm focusing on is all about survivalist art, like preppers and survivalism and survivalist culture. Love it. And like, I mean, I've gone through a lot of different like thinking patterns about it and what it means to be a survivalist and also what it means to collect art as a survivalist. But also, perhaps it's like a really genuine and thoughtful subculture because maybe everyone is encouraging everyone and trying to build a community of those who believe in preparing for something they almost can't prepare for because what if you're the last person? How lonely would you be? Mm -hmm. So I do think that a lot of these things also are uh, maybe they don't mean to be, but they are community forming. And I find that interesting. Um, I do think the internet in general led to a loss of subculture um, because no longer were you handed a particular like flyer to a punk show and you would get to go because you had access and the, the serendipity of receiving that flyer being handed to you. And mm -hmm. therefore you're in the know. And that's also something with my sculptures. I don't like giving directions because I like that one person in the room might know that you can sit on it and then it cues someone else that they can. But if those two people were never in the room together, one might not assume you could interact with it. Yeah. But uh, that's just how I can connect everything this moment. But technological singularity, we can go back to that. <laughs> I speak in tangents. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I mean, we're in this time where I think we all accept that literally anything is possible and will be invented. Mm-hmm. I think maybe to be a to be a twenty or thirty year old or, or even a teenager or a teenager a tween, even like thirty decades ago. I mean, even three decades ago, you know, you could think about stuff and like sci-fi is is that just like predictive tech or yeah. speculative tech, and maybe things some things seemed just outrageous. But now literally anything seems possible. And I assume someone's already doing it sure. or is being funded or being funded not to, for that to, invention to happen. Yeah. I just, everything seems um, possible. Uh, I just seem like I wouldn't be able to be the person to figure it out. But there is someone. And if it's not being figured out now, that kid that's 
going to figure it out is being born right now. Yeah. I just feel that we're getting pretty good at this. Do you have reservations about that, though? Or I mean, are you kind of like into I mean, it seems like it's inevitable. So maybe it's futile to kind of think, well, yeah. isn't this going to make us worse off or something? Like it's going to happen. Well, a lot Regardless. of my work does explore the futility of trying to protest it mm -hmm. and more promotes integration. And I kind of appear in a lot of my work. I'm a performance artist and I take different characters or different positions through the different mediums, but I'm often just like a guide or a host ushering people to these new ideas. They're not always the most researched or perhaps beneficial, but it's kind of me pushing forward anyways. Does it have to do a little bit with uh, introducing people to those things, but also kind of how to muck around in them and screw with them and do something different than they're initially intended for? I mean, I think about the kind of fusion of uh, makeup tutorials with anti-surveillance kind of politics and the, what was that series that you did called where you're showing people how to do makeup so they can't be recognized on camera? Yeah, um, the makeup tutorial, How to Hide from Cameras, where I used um, Adam Harvey's CV Dazzle uh, research. Yeah, of course, it's kind of this way of like, if you can't beat it, kind of join it. And um, these things, I feel that we can't fight it. So you might as well find a way to exist. And honestly, that's a lot of the work going back to that postmortem question. And some of the work that came after in my film, I Am Your Grandma. Um, and I, after I make a really loud piece, I usually make some quiet pieces. And I consider the makeup tutorial, How to Hide from Cameras, as a quiet piece, as well as some self-portraits I make. I, ma I make. <laughs> I made that um, are, I'm in a lot of my work, but they're the only works I've ever called self-portraits. And what I did is posed and really can't be self-aware of the camera way. And I let natural light um, just totally overexpose me. Uh, in a literal but also somewhat metaphorical sense and it's kind of I was dealing with this how can you be a contemporary human how can you exist without the burdens of doing so mm -hmm. and ever since I was little so I'm born in the mid 80s so every since ever, ever since I was born someone has more or less known where I've been mm -hmm. I've been tracked I've had a social security number um, there's been you know some camera something pretty much it's been easy to locate me uh, and probably my generation is the, or my demo <laughs> is the first where that became normalized and mm -hmm. even more so now. So is there a way to exist in this world and to thrive without sticking a claim to, uh, go against that? Can you just exist? And I think that it's always this, this navigation between in and out. And how can you, how can you even like we have, I think our culture is obsessed with control and or others are obsessed with control on us and kind of our information and what it means and what information we're constantly giving off and ultimately it being related to capitalism i think uh so that's even where my recent billboard projects um have come from too like what how are you responding and how can you train yourself to navigate this world like past advertising and there's even you know these all these we're all aware of each other's micro expressions and listicles that explain how to have better body language for mm. asserting yourself or getting that job but when everyone's using these devices of manipulation and um this what is the word like homogeneity homo homogeneity uh like yeah this homogeneous like form of us we've all mastered these tips on how to be a better presenting human it's uh -huh. just like this joke of how to perform you're okay
Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. A lot of my work's actually quite emotional and coming. Yeah. It's tech it's tech based. I'm not a tech artist. I'm not an internet artist. I think I'm just like a an artist, you know? Well, you're a contemporary artist, con- it seems like. These are contemporary issues. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, I'm contemporary artist, but they are quite emotional and trying to figure out how to deal and how to work within the system and not... You know, yeah, there's almost a... Lose your mind. <laughs> there's kind of a, a realist's perspective, I think, in it, which is that, especially when you're talking about... I'm trying to link this to this idea of leaving information for future generations or being able to catalog knowledge and things that go to waste. Uh, the idea... I mean, and certainly there's something to be said for somebody who's very radical and just kind of is part of dropout culture and goes and starts a commune in the woods. Like, wonderful. What a neat way to do something. But on the other hand, not, you know, most people don't have the uh, don't have the situation where that's ever going to be a reality for them, that that would be anything that was remotely sustainable. And so if you do have to exist within the framework, it seems like creating situations where people become knowledgeable of both how they're being manipulated and advertised to tracked and other things like that is a more realistic way of navigating the world. And so I feel like that's maybe, maybe that's what is kind of confusing about your work that I like is that it seems that it both is very interested in and almost celebratory of some of these things, but the whole time it's kind of also at the same time being a little bit, um, a little bit wary of the stuff, but, from an emotional framework, which I think is unique because in post-internet art and things like that, that's often stripped right out of it. There's not a lot of emotional content because it is supposed to be this kind of post-irony take on the aesthetics of manipulation and surveillance. Um, Yours seems like it has a little bit more of a, like you said, emotional take to it. Yeah, I'm a sincere person. Yeah, you well, you seem pretty sincere. (laughs) It's hard to say that. No, I think... I'm not joking. (laughs) I mean, yeah, like irony gets... Irony gets old to me. Like, I don't I don't like sarcasm anymore. I like parody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I prefer that. Um, I, I mean, there's one thing about, like, making jabs at stuff. And then there's another, uh, another side to taking a moment to evaluate why we feel certain ways about it or why you have to have that sarcastic defense all the time. Mm-hmm. I think when I was younger, it was like a go-to uh, barrier right like we i thought it was like a descriptive uh, quality of one's personality but it's just ultimately a defense yeah same no i feel very similarly that i had a approach to trying to think that uh ironically embodying things that were terrible was somehow meant that i was somehow meant that i was smarter than them and that i was being critical of them when in actuality like the layers of in joking that goes on there, like usually it just ends up resulting in perpetuating the, the meanness or the very same stuff that you think that you're kind of being above or something. Yeah, totally. And that's why like I'm in some um, private meme groups, but (laughs) I really have a, what? (laughs) What? It's just a, I I mean, I believe it. I'm in some some private meme groups and uh, the ones that I really, I'm attracted to are like accounts that really just offer thoughtful memes or respectful memes. Mm-hmm. So good. Yeah. I like respectful memes. <sighs> Me too. Now, are these actually respectful memes or are they memes that are a joke because they're respect? Because I feel like I've seen, mm. I feel like there is maybe like a, a Facebook group called like respectful memes. And I've seen those, but I feel like it's being, they're being made by people who are making them. Because they're disrespectful people who would like respectful memes. Does that make sense? 
<laughs> I've only made one meme in my entire life. I'm actually not good at... Um, I can make jokes, mm-hmm. but meme jokes are really hard. Yeah. There's something about the format that's lost on me. <laughs> it's so... I just can't. Like, I've tried so hard. You can't hard. construct them. No. You can receive them, but you can't. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, it's a it's a disability I'm working through. But I made one meme, and it was a startup pack meme. And it was just some mm. startup pack startup pack meme. <laughs> like, how to nice. make a startup pack. Got it. Um, so I had to go the meta route, which isn't that good either. Mm-hmm. One time, uh, Claire got really excited because there was a starter starter pack. Um, and it was for people who make, like, sourdough starters. Like, for bread. <laughs> <laughs> it was... Very deep nerd cut. Um, but speaking of sincerity, should... you are you are sincerely an artist in Miami. No, I feel like that's a. I feel like you your work and your aesthetic and a lot of the things that you are about seem kind of intrinsically linked to the city, and that it's a place that you live very intentionally. Because, like, let's be real, you could very easily live in Los Angeles or New York or Berlin or any of these other places. Um, but Miami is your home base and you do a lot of work there that has to do with the community that while I would say is linked to your art practice is kind of like a, kind of a separate endeavor that has to do with, uh, creating access to technology or knowledge sets for people that are living there specifically through Borscht core. And for someone who's uninitiated, who's listening, what is the Borscht core and why is it something that could only kind of happen in Miami? Well, the Borscht Corp is a nonprofit film collaborative, and it is based in Miami. And uh, what we do is we throw a film festival that's kind of more like a summer camp weekend every two years or so with different... A biennial. A a biennial. (laughs) (laughs) We throw it. And we have ancillary programming throughout the year, but uh, the main event is the Borscht Film Festival. And only one night do we really trap you in a movie theater. We believe the methods of um, interacting with media have changed. So there's a lot of interactive and experiential um, nights of programming that uh, consider the content and that's integrated into how we program the full days. Mm -hmm. Uh, And people often say it feels like summer camp because it's like summer camp designed by artists. Or like what happens if you give a bunch of artists uh, the ability to throw a film festival and to invite other people to come. So it is a very, very special uh, weekend or five-day affair. And um, we try to go to places in the city that are not generally inhabited by people watching films or watching media or people that potentially wouldn't have access to certain uh, places like the New World Symphony, Frank, like Frank Gehry Building, Uh, people that just never thought they'd be able to afford a ticket in there as well. Uh, And um, what we do is we try and get our grants and sponsorships in line and re-grant them to different artists and media makers uh, that are making work inspired by Miami or Florida in some capacity. Uh, Perhaps you had a grandparent that lived there and um, only played certain songs and that influenced a small piece that you want to make. Or perhaps you're from there and you're just wanting to tell a story of your grandmother who practices Santeria and it makes sense for you to tell it now. But we really encourage people to tell stories only if they could tell. Um, There's lots of other um, submissions and call for entries that are down to support other ideas, but then those aren't probably for us, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. 
Um, so we, we support different people in different ways. Um, some people need monetary support. Some people need gear. Some people need note sessions. And we try to kind of just create a community around the independent film scene in Miami. In the last like eight years, uh, several independent film houses, cinema houses, cinematechs have popped up. But it wasn't so much like that 10 years ago. The Knight Foundation has been extremely uh, instrumental in creating and supporting an art scene in Miami. Uh, Time Warner Inc. is one of our sponsors. Uh, LaCroix was last year. We have certain grants, like we have one called the No Bro Zone, which is for female and female identifying filmmakers. We have a first generation American grant. We have um, different a different palette of um, of uh, groups that we like to try and make sure they get support because they generally fall outside the demographic of expensive filmmaking. So the democratization of film equipment and different media becoming less expensive to make just like basic film projects makes what we do more possible. And then also having some good Wi-Fi. You know, you could kind of be anywhere in the world at this point. You don't need to buy into the so the old understandings that you have to be in a certain city that's known for its art or known for its filmmaking communities to have a voice. Mm-hmm. You know, there's more regional projects, there's more interest in regional projects than I think in previous um, decades. So it's exciting to see what weird stories come out of your city or your life. I mean, Miami is a place that is very much uh, represented in the media as something like the backdrop of Bad Boys 2 or mm. Scarface, which is also awesome and we love it and celebrate it. You know, you, Miami Vice is pretty badass, but there's also more. There's also yeah. weirder stories. There's also, what is it? Miami's pretty new. And most of the people that live there that I know, parents came from either the Caribbean or Europe or South America. So it's like, what does it mean to now be in this, to be in the US in this place that feels very, very uh, not like other parts of the US? Sure, yeah. Yeah, it has a, a very distinct character and it's really unique. And I think too, in the one of the things that I like about Borsch and about the work that you make and the work that you and um, Lucas, who is co-founder of Borsch? No, he founded it. Founded it, okay. And uh, we're co-directors of it. Brought you on. Yeah. <laughs> um, Lucas yeah. Leva, right? Yes, I joined in about 2010 and I believe it's 2018 now. Wow. Wow. So it's been around for a minute. Um, but that demonstrating kind of like a regional uh aesthetic that isn't um prescriptive or fascist but really is about telling the stories that happen there opens up the idea of miami to a lot of different perceptions and like you're saying what's in the media or it's specifically in the art world that it's like where people go for four days in december but there's all this great stuff going on there there are all these amazing artists and there's all this stuff that's happening and i think that that's part of what Borsch is doing, but also what you're doing is kind of almost like a, what is the word I'm looking for? Like a cultural attache to the rest of the country or something that it seems like, and not that you're representative of the whole city, but just that it seems cool that you're from Miami and that's like where you make your work. Yeah. And I mean, we all know that Florida is facing some problems, you know, sea level rise. It's, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's constantly at the forefront of dis- of um, discussion because it is one of the ground zeros for disappearing cities or, um, you know, and what does it mean when, especially as an art maker who is making physical objects, when literally the land in which you show your work on or make your work on is diminishing. Um, you know, we, we pump sand, like many uh, beach towns, 
we pump sand from the ocean from about six miles out back onto our beach so the tourists can see that there's a beach. But that beach isn't even really there anymore. Mm. So we, we are this kind of artifice and we are this kind of mirage already. And um, what does it mean when the, the land that you inhabit, in a, especially in a time where people are so um, content to talk about borders or who gets to be in a country and who gets to be out when your land is literally disappearing and what changes will we see with increased global warming um and how will that affect everyone and we all know that the rich are affected last on everything generally (laughs) and the rich the rich are generally the people that get to collect art Mm -hmm. so there's going to be a lot of shifts um i think my work does face a lot of i think the reason i am interested going back to the technological singularity question is because I feel that I'm kind of confronted with the end in a particular way. So what does that mean with everything humans have figured out? Mm -hmm. So perhaps that that's why the idea of this like unlimitless cloud or archive or the consolidation of knowledge is of interest to me. Yeah. Because I always knew I would die. <laughs> sure. But I didn't realize my land would disappear. Do you think your uh, sort of personal acceleration into investigating prepper culture and doomsday things is related to that kind of background anxiety of a pummeling storm, potentially? like? Of course. Yeah. When um, Hurricane Irma was coming and all of Florida, if you looked at the news, was bright red and it was declared like an evacuation state, there was large discrepancies between my group of friends that was in town shooting a a feature film. Do we stay or do we go? And all the people from out of town that were visiting uh, left. And me and Lucas stayed. And um, I realized more than if you, more than if what you did to prepare for the storm, it made me realize there's two types of people, those who stay and those who go. And not to say one is better than the other at all, but I never realized I would stay. Mm -hmm. I kind of, was ready to see um ready to see mother earth kick ass and kick my ass and i i've always i've always been attracted to natural disasters and i have this theory that they were never natural disasters till we built infrastructure they were just storms or just the goings of the earth and i i guess i get obsessed with thinking about things in a very micro and very macro and in and out system and um really earth is just doing her thing yeah. we're just here and we we create all these systems in which we think i don't know perhaps they preserve civilization or really just help some people gain a lot over others but um to me it's just like a funny game we do and to make us feel better for the like eight decades we're on earth yeah and yeah. we really screw a lot of people over and it's kind of it's well it's really sad but um i don't know does the new work that you're embarking on you don't have to tell me too much about it. Um, I don't want to blow up your spot. But <laughs> is that because when you first brought it up and you said, oh, I'm working on the stuff with Doomsday Preppers, it's like the, on the one hand, I'm very attracted to those ideas and really kind of like excited. I mean, who isn't you know, every culture uh, ever has been titillated by the concept of the end of the world or thought that perhaps this is the end times and things like that. And so there's one part of me that's really excited, like the sci-fi nerd and the post-apocalyptic literature fan and all the stuff where it's just like, oh, you know, like I want to get a bunker and blah, blah, blah. But then 
on the ground, I feel like the, and a lot of this is just representations that I'm receiving through media and stuff like that, but that so many people who are doomsday preppers and things like that, uh, at least in this country are like psycho white nationalists with like gun bunkers and, uh, people like Peter Thiel or like Elon Musk who want to go and they're prepping for something, but they're prepping like an exit strategy or like a fortified colony that only the certain percentage of people will be allowed yeah, to the go rich. to. Yeah, well, and that's, and I think that's something that, you know, it's very much like a, a paranoid kind of response to things, but it seems relatively clear that things even subconsciously like Burning Man are testing grounds for extremely wealthy people to figure out how long can they survive under like specific conditions by bringing X amount of technology and things like that. And how, you know, yeah, X, X amount of ecstasy, <laughs> <laughs> but really, and I don't think that they're all, I don't, I'm going to check that just cause I may have a package, but anyways. Yeah. So just that's something that comes up when I think about doomsday prepping too, is that some of the people who are doing it are like, doing it for reasons that are uh very different than just like wanting the species and its knowledge and culture to survive well they want a very specific chunk of that knowledge and culture to survive uh, yeah i mean what you just said makes me think of a lot of things and i mean yes it even takes a certain amount of extra disposable income to even get your bug out bag and prepare for the end i mean there's a lot of people who barely have enough uh, money to feed their family today versus yeah. think uh, about what will happen in a, six months or something. <laughs> yeah, a bunker. Exactly. Um, so, but there is something also that I'm attracted to. Uh, so a lot of really wealthy people I know, uh, they don't know how to do things. No. <laughs> and they're constantly hiring other people to do things for them. So perhaps... I like to imagine that the people that will survive will be the most well-rounded generalists. <laughs> but then my friend pointed out that rich people will just hire those people to tend to them. Well, only if... In theoretical apocalypse, if those people are hireable. If they're hireable and if anyone has any interest in the like ridiculous concept of currency yes. or capital any longer. that might Will that, it go back to just food? Is Will it go back to food bartering? It might go back to food, yeah. And just because you're... I guess if you're rich, you could store up a bunch of food. But the thing that rich people also really enjoy is the protection by the police state. And if yeah. that doesn't exist, they're going to be robbed. Yeah, that's a, that's another thing. <laughs> like they're is... not going to... Their fortified uh, thing isn't going to keep them very long, I think. Like when people become desperate and there's real desperation, I wonder... I wonder. I don't know. It's really fun to think about. It's terrifying. Well, but... maybe you should also be a good person yeah. who shares what you have. They won't do that. Well, I mean, in theory. In theory they're not going to do that. The, wouldn't that be some type of a version of a utopian society is a, a small community uh, taking care of each other? But then, like, when it's hard to think about the future without thinking about it in a dystopic way where yeah. all the machines that don't no longer have gas or technology to to keep them going or just kind of laying on the floor and like vines are growing over them. Yeah. And then we power them with steam and we start getting like <laughs> dirigibles and stuff. No, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a, that's an interesting question. I, I don't think that rich people are equipped to not hoard. It is in their 
genetic like generational wealth but ho- dna but hardware as well they yeah. are there we on floating crafts <laughs> like water world water world's important yeah i like that movie yeah it's really good it is good mm-hmm. it got very much made fun of. well the one thing and i know this is i'm not the person who made this up but the thing that was very confusing for me i haven't seen it in a long time was how they were smoking cigarettes chic huh it's chic. No, but where were they getting? Surely there's a finite number of cigarettes left. Oh, yeah. And but it seems they like had, there were been... a couple plants. Maybe someone's growing tobacco. I guess so, yeah. Now, that would be, that'll be the currency of the future. Cigarettes? Yeah, yeah. That's what everybody should, will want. You should start now. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what's coming up after New Orleans? Anything that we should plug? Anything that people should keep an eye out for? Um, well, some of the Borscht films will be at South by Southwest. Cool. Uh, they premiered at Sundance and the one on to Rotterdam, and now uh, some will go to South by Southwest and nice. other film festivals. I have a show at a space called There There. Uh, it's uh, directed by Lori Furstenberg uh, from Laxart. She opened a new space uh, in L.A. That will be like April 5th or 6th. And I'm going to Headlands after. And the Headlands Center for the I am, Arts? I am going to the Headlands Center for <clears throat> the Up Arts. A, for a residency? Yes, I am. Congratulations. Thank you. It's hard to get into that. I was on the wait list. Yeah. I waited. I was patient, <laughs> hopeful, did good deeds. I've definitely never gotten into that. You can visit me there. Do you want to come? Maybe if I can afford to. There's a chef. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm really excited. Um, That's something special that I am looking forward to. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm going to have a show. I'm going to have my first show in Europe in July. I'll give you some info when it's ready. Amazing. Wow. So very busy. I guess that will be very good to go and sit kind of slightly undisturbed up in, uh, where is it? It's in like Marin County. Marin County. Yeah. North of, north of the Bay. Residencies are so such an amazing and beautiful uh, experience and gift to artists. There's, it's really so um, rejuvenating, mm-hmm. and you you become an infant. Like they like ring bells when it's time to eat, and you walk out of your little studio like a stray cat. That is pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very Pavlovian. It's oh, perfect. Well, if there's any wealthy people listening. You should start some fully funded artist residencies with stipends. Yeah, her. <laughs> um, well, Jillian, thanks very much for coming by. I know you had a very busy week here in New York. Uh, your show at Postmasters is up for several more weeks. Uh, I'll put in the episode description when people can go by. And Postmasters is like a full-on gallery, so you can even go on a weekday, and there'll be, there will be people there during the hours that they say that they're open. Yeah, which is really fantastic. nice people and an incredible dog. <laughs> oh, yeah. What's a dog's name? Bumper. Bumper. <laughs> Bumper. Bumper is really uh, just you could go visit Bumper alone. Yeah, if you, yeah. Even if you hate art, you should go Yeah. Go to Postmasters. Uh Cool. Well, Jillian, thank you so much. Uh, I hope you have fun in New Orleans. And are you going to Austin? No. For South by? No. no. Okay. Well, I wish you the best of luck at your residency. Congrats on the upcoming shows. And uh, thanks again to everybody out there in listener land. Um, I'm going to, you're going to have another, you're going to have another episode this Sunday. So like, I, it's not even, ne- I guess technically it's next week, but yeah, they're coming out like, it's just a waterfall, baby. 
Bye.